0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the latest on the U.S.-Iran situation. Are we now on the path to de-escalation? Also, talking about LNG development and the importance of involving First Nations in meaningful partnerships for shared economic prosperity. Plus, some interesting news about the royal family today. So what does it all mean and mean for Canada? Iran appears to be standing down which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. Well, it certainly would be a good thing if if that is indeed what has happened here. So that was U.S. President Donald Trump speaking earlier today in the aftermath of what happened last night, these missile attacks on two military bases in Iraq that house American troops and, in fact, Canadian troops, at at least one of these bases as well. Uh, so no American casualties, no Canadian casualties in, in those attacks. And, and maybe, just maybe, this is Iran's way of saving face and taking a step back from the brink. Now, we did, of course, have news last night of this uh, horrific uh, tragedy, this plane crash, uh, that, as we've learned today, included 63 Canadians killed, 27 of them from Edmonton. Uh, A plane that uh, had taken off from the airport in Tehran that appears to be a very tragic coincidence, not at all linked to this standoff. We'll have more on that news today. But joining us to talk a bit more now about where things stand between the U.S. and Iran and whether Iran has indeed blinked. Uh, Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Noah Rothman. He is an associate editor at Commentary Magazine, also a contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. And he is uh, author of the book that is called Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So you wrote a piece today up at CommentaryMagazine.com looking at uh, whether Iran has blinked. Uh, I mean, it appears that way today. How likely do you think it is?
0: I mean, it seems that way. Iran has the capability to produce casualties if it were so inclined. Um, I don't think it was so inclined. It seems to me, uh, and it seems to other observers, and I'm inclined to defer to them, that these uh, this display of ballistic missiles and cruise missiles, while escalatory because they originated from Iranian soil and they were ballistic missiles and not rockets, um, was nevertheless calibrated to not produce an American response. Um, The mission was apparently telegraphed ahead of time, communicated to Iraqi uh, government sources, which communicated that to American officials. The launch provided Americans with enough time to harden their positions and avoid casualties. And... After the uh, the volley was launched, uh, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif spoke about the retaliatory response in the past tense. Now, that's not to say that all Iranian responses are over. The most dangerous responses, which we're still prepared to see in the future, will come from uh, proxies, deniable proxies in theaters outside the Middle East. Uh, what we're really concerned about are places like Europe, Latin America, and North America. Nevertheless... Um, that's returned to the status quo ante. I mean, that's pretty much what we've been dealing with from Iran for the last 40 years. What we've been seeing from Iran over the course of the last eight months were direct, undeniable attacks on American and allied assets, uh, on shipping in the Strait of Hormuz, on uh, the oil facility in Saudi Arabia, downing American drones, raining rockets on American positions over the course of the last two months, and producing deaths and casualties as a result. So if we see a climb-down, from that as a result of this attack that neutralized Qasem Soleimani, uh, 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 Sal- mm-hmm. then we've deterred Iran. We've restored deterrence, which had broken down. And that is an unequivocal victory for the president and the United States. <laughs> Right,
1: and, and certainly, I mean, you know, that, that threat of force, while potentially escalating, is, is a, a deterrence factor. The idea that uh, the U.S. is prepared to respond in kind if Iran retaliates in a serious way, that's something that the Iranian regime obviously has to, to factor into consideration. Then,
0: And it seems like they are. I mean, we're dealing with, um, to the extent you can, you can make this assessment, we're dealing with rational actors who understand cost-benefit analysis, and who respond to deterrence signals. Um, If you raise the cost of doing business to a point that the risk and resistance is unacceptable, then you've created the conditions for deterrence. Um, This is just really basic elementary theory, uh, and it seems to be applicable in this case. So a lot of observers who are suggesting that this is an escalation that was going to precipitate further escalation completely misread the situation from the beginning. Deterrence had broken down. And a disproportionate response to the siege on the American embassy, which, by the way, breached walls, resulted in the, in the uh, incineration of the uh, of the front uh, office space and forced American diplomats into a hiding space. It was a real contingency. We had to insert 100 Marines on an emergency basis to disperse this crowd. Um, the response to that has been so disproportionate that it has scared uh, the Iranian regime into adopting a status quo anti-position. And that's the objective and the objective seems to have been achieved uh that's something that we should be celebrating uh it seems that you know anybody who's disappointed by this response i'm I'm really not entirely sure what they hoped to see achieved this is an unequivocal as i said victory for the united states and a very good thing for our troops in in harm's way uh
1: back in the early 90s uh, after israel uh, took out uh, one of the leaders of hamas uh, the, the Iranian, well, Hezbollah, through, yeah, it was Hezbollah, not Hamas, Hezbollah, um, they, they bombed uh, the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, uh, I think it was about a month after that happened. So, you know, that kind of a response may be coming further down the road. I, I guess we can't rule that out, but different dynamics today, certainly.
0: I mean, it, it certainly could be, and if it were, it would be a dramatic escalation, and I wouldn't put it past this administration to respond, once again, disproportionately to such a dramatic uh, attack on on American interests. Um, But it's speculative, and I don't want to get in front of events. Um, What we've been seeing over the course of the last two months were direct uh, escalations and attacks on American interests, American personnel, and the kind of stuff that should precipitate an international military response. You know, in the absence of the fracking revolution over the course of the last decade, the United States and Canada and others can now serve as the stabilizing force to prevent oil shocks. Mm-hmm. The kind of activities that Iran was engaged in, basically shutting down commerce and attacking the world's largest petroleum processing facility, that would have necessarily resulted in an international military response because you couldn't allow the oil market to be shocked like that. Um, but in that, in, in, the, in this new world order in which we have the capacity to, to calm oil markets, we have a lot more freedom of action and Iran has very much fewer options. Uh, so it's understandable that you would see Iran try to um, experiment with its freedom of action and try to shape geopolitics in ways that, are, that it used to have the capacity to do and no longer does. Uh, nevertheless, we've, uh, we've managed to affect, uh, I think, Im- impose a level of caution on the mullahs that was previously uh, not evident in their behavior. And uh, again, that's a good thing. Yeah, it
1: is. Uh, the, the events that led up to the decision to take out Soleimani, what, what, what's your sense of what Iran's objectives were? Are they trying to drive the Americans out of Iraq? What, what, is, what is their goal, or what had been their goal?
0: That's one strategic consideration. The uh, chief strategic consideration from the Iranian perspective is to uh, destabilize the region and to impose a lot of uh, fear and trepidation on Europe. Uh, what they want to do is sever the American-European alliance, and to compel Europe to break from the pledges that it made in the uh, Iran nuclear accords, in order to give Iran more freedom of action or lift some of the sanctions that are crippling its economy. One of the reasons, one of the things that was reported early on when Iran said after the killing of Soleimani, Iran said, you know, we're we're failing to abide by the JCPOA for the most part. And it was reported in the West that Iran had dropped all its um, all its uh, recomm- or, uh, its obligations from the Iran nuclear deal, but that was not true. Iran will continue to abide by the so-called enhanced verification provisions within the deal, because if it were to abandon the deal entirely, Europe would be compelled by virtue of the provisions in the deal to reimpose the sanctions that were imposed on it in the the, uh, time before the deal. It's not in um, Iran's interest to see those sanctions reimposed. What it wants to do is get these sanctions lifted, and in order to do that, it has to sever the European-American alliance. So anything that it does that that threatens to uh, restore American and European cohesion uh, is detrimental to its to its uh, strategic vision. So yes, getting the United States out of its region, one objective, but it's a secondary objective. The first is to lift the economic pressure that's really crippling this. Uh, its capacity to act in its region and threatening the stability of the regime. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, to, to all of that, of course, the, the president talked today about uh, a greater NATO involvement to, in the Middle East. He directly appealed to to UK ally, or to European allies, including the UK and, and Germany, and announced new sanctions on, on Iran on top of all of that. So w- what is the administration's objective now at this point vis-a-vis Iran and, and its allies?
0: Well, I'm, I don't think anyone will say it out loud. But ultimately, the objective is regime change. Certainly not the kind of regime change that we saw in Iraq. A military incursion topples the regime and occupies the country. That's in no interest, and it will not be forthcoming. But if you believe that this regime is a threat to geopolitical stability, and it has nothing to do with its weapons program, just it's the fact that it's the world's chief sponsor and exporter of terrorism, that threat will not abate so long as this regime exists. The maximum pressure campaign is designed... To incentivize, incite, and inflame domestic opposition to this regime, and it's been incredibly successful. Since February of 2019, we've seen um, demonstrations and riots in the streets, not just in Iran, but all around the region where its influence is uh, over the local governments is extensive. Places like Lebanon and Iraq. Um, that's the sort of thing that this administration is going to continue. To maintain pressure on this on this regime, it makes it difficult to have a negotiated solution, a diplomatic solution to the standoff. But it's not impossible. You can have two tracks at the same time, um, which is one of the reasons why this administration has so far said, you know, so told members of the diplomatic corps that you're not supposed to meet with opposition figures. You know, we, we want to make sure that this we don't want to inflame tensions anymore with the government because they want to maintain the capacity to negotiate with this regime and provided a diplomatic off-ramp, a means by which it can de-escalate crises in the event that they exist. But ultimately, it is the policy of the United States government over the last 40 years, with a brief exception of the Obama period, to see this regime dissolve uh, I think that's ultimately the United States strategic objective. I don't see that changing anytime soon.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, well, one would think. I mean, you know, Trump has certainly take a harder line with regard to Iran than he has, for example, with the, the leadership in North Korea. I mean, different situations, obviously. But, but, do you think Trump is is open to some kind of a, a deal with the the Iranian
0: leadership? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think his instincts are toward. Uh, diplomatic negotiated solutions far more than they are towards military solutions. Um, he's demonstrated a willingness to negotiate with anybody who suggests they're willing to negotiate <laughs> with him, um, and, and doesn't really matter what the character of the regime is. So yes, I think he would be absolutely open to that, but he wouldn't be open to that while Iran is killing Americans and laying siege to our diplomatic facilities and threatening vital American interests in a very key strategic part of the world. Um, any president wouldn't be and shouldn't be. So uh, applauding him for refusing to succumb to his instincts in this case. Uh, But nevertheless, I think that's where his heart is. All right.
1: Much more. CommentaryMagazine.com. Noah, thanks so much for your time and your insight on this. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Noah Rothman, associate editor of Commentary Magazine, CommentaryMagazine.com, a contributor with NBC News and MSNBC. And we mentioned his book, uh, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. R.W. Right, over here, 403-974-8255-974-TALK. There is a lot going on today. Obviously, the situation between the U.S. and Iran. News of this uh, tragic plane crash in Iran that has claimed 63 Canadian lives, including 27 uh, from Edmonton. You know, see, I think certainly Canada is making important strides And and maybe the whole experience with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, maybe even before that, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, you know, learning these lessons when it comes to the importance of meaningful consultation with First Nations and also the prospect uh, and the value of partnerships with First Nations uh, where we can have that, that shared prosperity and cooperation. And so, like I say, I think we, we are making strides in the right direction. That's not to say that, that First Nations are going to be unanimous when it comes to these issues. But in a way, I mean, it's almost being presented that way. But the, the narrative that, uh, that, that all First Nations are, are opposed to resource development or opposed to these projects, and that, that's far from the truth. Uh, when it comes to, to Trans Mountain, for example... Uh, there are many First Nations very supportive of the project. In fact, there's a very real possibility of some First Nations ownership of that project. Uh, and the same is true of the coastal gas link pipeline, which is key to the LNG Canada project. There is some First Nation uh, opposition to, to the project, to be sure. But it should also be noted that all of the First Nations councils on this route support the project. Has been a, They've approved the project. Now, there have been some headlines concerning the coastal gasoline pipeline as of late, uh, and uh, it concerns the hereditary chiefs uh, of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, who uh, just recently sent an injunction uh, to workers uh, at this site, the main construction site for this pipeline project, and that has uh, shut down construction for the time being. Uh, that came in the aftermath of a court injunction uh, on uh, December 31st which should theoretically allow construction to proceed. Now, as mentioned, all 20 elected First Nations councils support this project. The B.C. government supports this project. The federal government supports this project. And what's interesting, even within the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, the elected band council and chiefs support the project. The hereditary chiefs do not. But joining us to talk more about uh, these projects and the importance uh, of First Nations consultation, partnerships, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Karen Ogintaves, is uh, CEO, one of the founding members, in fact, of the uh, First Nations LNG Alliance, a former elected chief of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, still a member, in fact, of their elected uh, council. Karen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi,
2: good afternoon.
1: Um, and, and help. I, I think you know it's important that people understand that that um, you know the elected chief, the elected band council of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, do do support this project. But but why do we have different voices claiming to to speak for the First Nation?
2: Well, I, I guess there's there's a couple of things. One is uh, you know most people don't like to subscribe to the Indian Act and uh, the chief and council. But as far as we know that's the only legal jurisdiction we have, and that's what our nation subscribes to. And, and then we have the hereditary chiefs, um, because with the Wet'suwet'en Nation, there are six First Nations that are have elected councils. And then you have the hereditary chiefs that uh, some of them are with the office of the Wet'suwet'en, and there are, you know, we have, uh, each of the communities have their own uh, hereditary chiefs as well, and um, you know because you know being on council, we have to deal with with a lot of issues, social, economic issues within our community, and so because we're the legal jurisdiction uh, until something else comes into play, that's what we subscribe to to get services, programs, and services to our community. Right that actually help the people on the ground. And so um, given the financial resources that we do get from Indigenous Services Canada, it's not sufficient enough to help deal with and alleviate some of our social economic issues that we have within the community. And so when I was the chief, I signed off one agreement with Coastal Gas Link. We did our due diligence, um, you know, we did all our homework in relation to ensuring that we've community communicated with our community members uh, that were part of our community. Um, we did our best with the means that we did have to sort of ensure that we're communicating with everybody and ensuring people have information on these agreements. Uh, and, and, and yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, go ahead. No, and I was going to say, I mean, you know, from your perspective, then, in dealing directly with this this company, um, have they been have they been upfront? Have they been, um, uh, you know, well intentioned in their attempts to to uh, address concerns and to to build a meaningful partnership?
2: Yes, they have. Actually, um, I, I can say that because when I was the chief, we were dealing with uh, maybe two or three companies and our nation in particular, would uh, with our team, we'd give out report cards to these uh, companies and let them know that you're excelling in this area and maybe you could improve in this area. So we were very um, upfront with them. uh, If there was issues that we thought that they needed to address, they were very forthcoming and were very upfront with us. So we had a good Working relationship with them, and it still exists to today.
1: Uh, let's talk about the uh, you know the, the first nation the FNLng alliance um, and and what you know why, why that group is formed in the first place and and what your message is?
2: Well you see when I was the chief um, when we signed these agreements, our, our nation in particular because a lot of people get with so First Nation mixed up with and think it's the overall of the six or, or the opposite of and So, we in particular received a huge backlash on, on social media about this issue when we weren't the only nation that signed. It, it could be because of our name or it could be because we were quite vocal and in supporting LNG and the reasons why. And so what, one of the things that we were faced with is our, our members and our people would be continuously asking us what is LNG, what, what is it, why should we, we don't know whether we should say yes or no to it. So from my perspective, I think it's really important and critical that we educate and inform the people so that they in turn can make their own informed opinion, their informed decision on whether they support LNG or not. And I think that's really critical with any sort of resource development project, that people have a full awareness, full education on any given resource development project so that the people can say, yes, I support this and these are the reasons why. Or no, I don't support it and these are the reasons why. And so we wanted to be an organization that would give all information from A to Z on LNG so that people can Okay, I'm more informed now. I I have some education and awareness on what LNG is and why these nations are supporting it. And it yeah. and it, it boils down to economic development, uh, increasing the livelihood of our people, and that has been our message right from since we formed. And um, and there are Witsotan people that support us. There are Wet'suwet'en, uh members. Uh, individuals in the six First Nations, elected uh, nations, that support this. But there's a lot of lateral violence, uh, bullying tactics that are going on for people that support it. So some of them remain silent because uh, of the lateral violence that they receive. Yeah,
1: that's unfortunate. So
2: re-
1: regarding uh, the situation that, that's uh, unfolded in recent days yeah uh, how do we how do we get past that I mean I think everyone wants obviously to resolve this in, in a peaceful manner and uh, ensure that this project can move forward I mean how, how do you think we need to, to, to deal with that
2: well you know what after last year we've had to really learn uh, quickly on the n- legal landscape of what all of this means and um, from what I understand uh, since delok the, the you know, we were looking at Aboriginal rights and title, mm-hmm. and that was sort of run by the Office of the Wisconsin. And back then, and still so to this day, part of their mandate and recommendations from Delcomook was that they were supposed to work with the six elected nations. And at that time, they were looking at uh, uh, going after a treaty. But that soon fell by the wayside. Our nation hasn't been involved with that organization. And um, it it really was a, a step to working together because we understand that you know hereditary chiefs are here to stay, and so are the elected councils until the Indian Act changes. Both forms of government are here to stay, and it's up to all of the Wet'suwet'en people, which are clan members, they need to have a say and tell uh, these leaders that this is what we want. This is whether they. They have the, the, the trump card here to say that, yes, we support LNG and these are the reasons why, or no, we don't support LNG and these are the reasons why. So I think our message has always been, since the Alliance has been formed, that we must work together. It's it's a certain issue, it's a certain problem, and the certain people need to be the ones to sit down face to face and hash it out and say, Either we agree or don't agree, but it it has to come from the people, the clan
1: members. Yeah. Well, much more uh, at the website, fnlngalliance.com. Karen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Yes, you're welcome. All the best to you. Uh, Karen Ogontaeves is CEO, founding member of the First Nations LNG Alliance, fnlngalliance.com. is a former chief of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and still is a member of the nation's elected council. Um, so, yeah, and a few people had texted earlier, you know, trying to clarify, well, why, you know, we have hereditary chiefs and elected chiefs and what's the difference and why do we have these competing voices? So uh, some explanation of that. But I mean, you know, the, the elected chiefs and the elected council have that, that mandate from the people to act in their interests. And so if the community has decided that it's in their interest to participate in the shared prosperity of this kind of a project then how on earth can we discount that? Right? And, and you've got this, this UN committee this week. I don't know if you saw that story. The UN uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racism uh, suggesting that, that somehow then, I guess what, it's, it's racist to proceed with these projects? Well, then, then how, is, how is it racist to, to reach out to these communities to get their involvement, their consent, their participation? And work toward a future of shared prosperity with them. That's racist. As opposed to just shutting down these projects, discounting the will of these First Nations, ignoring their voices. Makes no sense, does it? Some pretty surprising news today concerning the royal family, specifically uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and Meghan, who, as you probably know, were just here in Canada over the Christmas holidays, uh, vacationing here. Uh, Just yesterday, they were at Canada House in London, kind of officially thanking Canada for its hospitality during their recent vacation. Then we get this announcement today. Quote, after many months of reflection and internal discussions, we have chosen to make a transition this year and starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution. We intend to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially independent while continuing to fully support Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, They will be splitting their time between the United Kingdom and North America, which from what we're hearing today would uh, seem to indicate Canada. But what does this mean? Do do we have any precedence for this when it comes to to somebody this high profile within the royal family? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program, longtime royal watcher Patricia Treble, who's the royal contributor for McLean's magazine, Macleans.ca. more at RightRoyalty.com. Patricia, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Yikes. What a day, Robbie. What a day, indeed. Man. Now, and Breaking <laughs> royal news in 2020. Let's get off to a good start, shall we?
1: Yes. Well, it's interesting because, I don't know, did you have an inkling that, that maybe the couple were thinking of doing this? Because you wrote a piece from McLean's kind of speculating about this very thing.
2: I wrote a piece
3: um, for the um, 2020 Year Ahead issue uh, mm-hmm. of McLean's. I wrote it back in the beginning of December. And then I was literally about to press publish on another article talking about this, what would happen if they did come here you know, for private visits or something. I was about to press publish, and then the email landed. And I just kind of went, yikes, um, the timing. There have been rumors for a while. Um, if you go back to last year there were some some persistent rumors that they were they might they were thinking about maybe moving to Africa and then the logistics of that even even they kind of put the kibosh on that in that um, headline making interview that they did for the documentary at the end of their southern africa trip when they talked about like how much this was ta- how much royalties were taking out of them when you know when when Megan said it's not so much it's not enough to survive you have to thrive and when Harry talked about you know how every time he hears a camera click, he thinks of his mother, um, who was hounded by the the paparazzi, um, in the eighties and nineties. Um, and so and there've been kind of rumors about Canada, um, but not really. And then this morning, um, um, a Sun article landed saying that they were thinking of moving to Canada. Um, and clearly they've got they've been thinking about this for a while because they've just popped up on their own website, which only had one thing on it, which was, um, Harry's statement when they launched a lawsuit against one of the papers, uh, for going after Megan. It has, it's now populated with all sorts of stuff about this is what we're doing, here's our financing, here's a Q&A, here's the Commonwealth, here's the Serving the Queen. So this is, uh, this has been very pre-planned. This is not a sudden little last minute thing.
1: There is the question, and it quickly can get one down to quite a constitutional morass, but the idea of Prince Harry moving here and being the monarch, being the king of Canada.
3: Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. No. Not going to happen. We have a we have a monarch. We've had a monarch since the same monarch since nineteen fifty two, and that is the Queen of Canada. Right. Um, you have to you would have to start ripping into stuff in this country, and would do you, how much? How much? How much do you really want to go into the constitution? How much do you really want to open that little can of worms? Mm-hmm. The question is going to become though. So the, I'm going to back up. This statement says they're going to split their time between North America and Britain. Um, they're clearly, they, they said they're not going to give up Frogmore Cottage, which is what the, the Queen gave them um, on the, the Windsor estate, which has just been renovated at the tune of millions of pounds. Um, North America was not the United States. Megan's American. Right. Um, but, of course, she lived, she lived in Toronto uh, for seven seasons of suits, right? She, had, she rented a little um, little two-bedroom little um, house uh, in Toronto. Um, so she knows Canada. Um, obviously, they've just come for a six-week visit. They were out in, in North Saanich. Um, the assumption is when they're talking about their duties to the Queen and the Commonwealth and everything, Canada ticks all the boxes, right? You don't ha- you have all those r- those links um, without going into the states, which is a whole different can of worms. Um, because of course, there's security implications. There's you know him going to a different co- to a different country versus the Commonwealth. Um, they both have high profile duties in the Commonwealth. Are they think is still going to do it. But here's the question that nobody has answered. Nobody said, and and I've just written about this, my piece from Maclean's, is that, are they coming for just like private visits, like for chunks of time? Like you know how a lot of people who have, you know, if if you live abroad, you come back, you know, you spend your your summer vacation or your Christmas vacation, you spend like a month here, um, you know, visiting all the family, the cousins and everyone, and then you go back. Is that the sort of thing, or are they actually gonna work here? And if they're gonna work here, how is that gonna work? What province gets their base? And if it's BC, what is Alberta going to be upset? If they start talking about the environment in Alberta, what's the Premier going to say? You've got a can of worms who pays for this. They talk about being financially independent, but they are very high profile people. There's going to be security. There's going to be massive expenses. Um, So this is, I have no clue. Can they get a work visa? Can they get a work permit? I was looking at this. Do they qualify for a work permit? I'm thinking somebody could pull a, pull a
1: string for them. You would but, think.
3: But again, there'll be questions. How did they get around the rules that everyone else has to obey?
1: Well, but yeah, I know. what is this stat? I mean, his mom is I, the, the, or his grandmother rather, is, is the, the Queen of Canada.
3: The Queen of Canada, but she is not, so she's not actually a citizen because she is, she is above everything. Right. It, all, citizenship, everything is issued in her name. Passports are issued in her name. So she's technically not a citizen of everywhere. She has no passport, she has no driver's license. The rest of the royal family, though, are British citizens. They have passports. They use them when they travel. Um, They have diplomatic passports as well. Um, So they go through the normal system like everyone else. Um, And this, of course, will affect, as I've written my piece, this will obviously affect, if, if she's out of Britain for chunks of time, this affects her application to be a British citizen, which they said that they were going for right away. Because if you're out of the country for chunks of time, that obviously impacts it. I mean, everyone who's, you know, done land and immigrant and had to do all the calculations here. You know how that works, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be here. Um, I have no clue what happens when Archie turns four and he has to go to school.
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, that's assuming it is Canada. Um, but it's... Um, wow, it's going it's to be a very interesting year, I think, Rob, for Canada.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Well, people can read your piece. It's up at mcleans.ca, as I mentioned much more, at rightroyalty.com. Patricia, thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Rob. Take care. Uh, Patricia Treble, longtime royal watcher, the uh, royal contributor for McLean's magazine. Uh, so she was still surprised, as, as you heard her say, but you know, maybe just kind of an inkling that perhaps the couple were thinking of, of taking a step back. Uh, And then coming up this long vacation uh, here in Canada, it's it's all interesting timing. And by the way, and it was kind of neat yesterday for me, sort of a a few degrees of separation. I don't know if you saw any of the images of uh, Prince Harry and Meghan and they were there at Canada House and meeting with everybody. And there was uh, an RCMP officer there in his uh, official uh, RCMP uniform uh, looking uh, spiffy. I'm like, I know that guy and know that guy, <laughs> and he got to meet uh, the the royals and everything. Yeah, he used to be uh, based out of here. My kid played hockey with his kid. Now he's over there and uh, hanging out with the royals. That was kind of cool. Uh, let's not forget either that of course Prince Harry spent some time here in our province. Had some good times here in Calgary. Maybe not the kind of good times you want to relive now that you're married and and uh, you know with the child and everything. But hopefully, hopefully Harry still has some, some fond memories of, of Calgary. And if uh, they're looking to move to to Canada, you know, you could do a lot worse than uh, this, this part of the country. That's for sure. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.